This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. Our job now is to dream big. Delivered at TED conferences. To bring about the future we want to see. Around the world. To understand who we are. From those talks, we bring you speakers and ideas that will surprise you. You just don't know what you're going to find. Challenge you. We truly have to ask ourselves, like, why is it noteworthy? And even change you. I literally feel like I'm a different person. Yes. (laughs) Do you feel that way? Ideas worth spreading. From TED and NPR. I'm your new host, Manoush Zamarodi. I want you to come over here and watch these crazy videos. The other day, I called my two kids over to my laptop to watch music videos by one of my favorite bands, OK Go. If you're not familiar with OK Go, they make poppy kind of rock music. And they also make really innovative... Treadmills. Yes, sometimes treadmill-based. We're on treadmills, just dancing. And also science-based music videos. Yeah. We did a dance on treadmills, and that's the one that really turned the corner in terms of, like, the whole world going, oh, there's that video band. That's Damien Kulash Jr., the lead singer of OK Go. Or, at the time, that treadmill band. All right, are you ready for the next one? Yeah. So since then, we have done... Wait, is this by him too? Yeah, it's by the same band. We did a big chain reaction machine, <laughs> a big Rube Goldberg device. It's like dominoes, how they just keep on going, to, to make, which makes the other thing move. Yes, it's like a crazy machine, right, yeah. that you build. OK Go comes across as whimsical, but they're actually extremely intentional about their songwriting and video making. OK, where are they now? On an airplane. We did a video in, in zero-G. What? In, in microgravity, so we're sort of floating the whole time. <laughs> we have done drone shots of thousands of people on robotic scooters. <laughs> uh, sort of scooting around a park. Then there's that time that OK Go played musical instruments with a car. They also made a video featuring a laser that made toast. It lets us have a canvas that is both musical and visual, and it lets us play with ideas that range from like very nerdy to very, very broad and emotional things. And it's really fun. Which one did you guys like the best? I don't know. I liked all of them. Hey, well, can I see the first one again? Which one? The one with the treadmills? Yeah. So, as I've been preparing to introduce myself to you as the new host of the TED Radio Hour, I have kept coming back to OK Go and Damien Kulash and how he comes up with these new ideas. Because he says his ideas actually aren't new at all. They're just concepts that he has put into a new context. And the result is surprise and wonder, which is kind of how I think of what I've been doing over my last 20 years as a journalist. My job is to rigorously collect all the facts and stories, to interview just the right people, and then make connections and present them in a way that feels unexpected, but just right. To be able to use words that you know, but say something that you didn't know, or say something that at least feels fresh and touches you in a new way. And that is what I want to do with TED Radio Hour. Take this show that you know and love and add my own spin on it. Because for the past decade, I've been a public radio podcaster, an author, a TED speaker. I've actually been a guest on this show. And I am so thrilled to now be taking over the hosting duties from the lovely Guy Raz. But reinventing something that has been so consistently brilliant, it's exciting. It is also daunting. There is no map for how to do it, which is why we've decided to make my entire first episode about reinvention. Because change is hard. Transitions can be tough. But there are also opportunities to explore and discover and reimagine things that you thought you knew. So let's talk reinvention, starting with the creative process and OK Go's Damien Kulash. 
So our TED Talk was about um, creative ideas and, and where they come from. And um, the best analogy I could think of was this visual trick that I can't help but play all the time. Here's Damien on the TED stage. I have, I have a compulsive habit. I play parallax and perspective games with my eyes pretty much all the time. And it's something I've been doing since I was a teenager. And I think a big contributing factor may have been that this is how I decorated my high school bedroom. Okay, so what did your room look like? Um, I was um, super into the local Washington, D.C. punk rock scene. And I had posters from all the bands on my walls. I I, um, reveled in covering my room with stuff. And being a teenager, what I did in there, of course, was just talk on the phone for staggering amounts of time. And so I was in the, this like visual maelstrom, just pretty much usually sitting in one place. And I guess just the overload in general, I'm, my, my brain kind of tried to make sense of it. And I would, you know, if I could move my head off to one side a little bit, like the edge of the desk would line up just perfectly with that poster on the opposite wall. Or if I put my thumb out, I could close first my left eye and then my right, and my thumb would bounce back and forth between Jimi Hendrix's left eye and his right. It was not like a conscious thing, of course. This is just kind of the equivalent of doodling while you're talking, and it's still something I do all the time. This is my wife, Kristen. And it's not uncommon that we are out at dinner and in the middle of a great conversation, then she'll just stop mid-sentence. And when she stops is when I realize that I'm the one who's acting weird because I'm like bobbing and weaving. And what I'm trying to do is get that ficus back there to stick out of her head like a ponytail. And to me, that's sort of what the, the, the feeling of coming up with ideas is like. Like, I have never been the type of creative person who generates something out of thin air. Um, it's like I put myself in a position where there are, there are all these things flying around me, and then I just I, I pray that I can line something up, you know, that I can get something unexpected to click. So what we do is we try to identify some place where there might just be a ton of those untried ideas. We try to find a sandbox, and then we gamble a whole bunch of our resources on getting in that sandbox and playing. Because we have to trust that it's the process in the sandbox that will reveal to us which ideas are not only surprising, but surprisingly reliable. So some of the sandboxes that we've started videos with. Let's play with uh, optical illusions. Let's try to dance on moving surfaces. Let's try to make toast with a laser cutter. We're just trying everything we can think of because we need to get this idea space filled up with a chaos like the one in my high school bedroom. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like what you're saying would make you think like, oh my God, this guy cannot stop coming up with ideas. But based on your talk, I would think that you would disagree with that statement. I do. I do disagree with that statement. I it doesn't um I am am happy to let the world continue on with the charade that um that I invent any of these ideas or that my band does. Um but it just doesn't feel that way. It really does feel like like mining, you know, like like you're just digging and digging and digging, and then suddenly there's a giant diamond or you know stripe of gold in, and it was just there. Like <laughs> music, somewhat unlike the the video or visual parts of this, will never really succumb to reason, and and mm-hmm. that is why it's so magical to me. You know, if I add yellow and red together, I I know what color I'm going to get out the other side. If you add this chord to that chord, I can tell you what what chord will happen, but I can't tell you what emotion will happen. Mm. You know, it's scratching an itch so deep in your brain that doesn't have a a set of sort of like reasons attached to it. It just is. And, you know, my, my favorite songs ever are the same chords as so many of the songs I hate the most. You know, it's, it's not <laughs> like you can't, you can't break it down that way. It's just, there's something about it that, that touches you that way. And so I, I think that's why I will probably chase it for the rest of my life is that, it's so magical when you're like you you're throwing sounds against the wall and they all just come back as sounds and then all of a sudden one of them is this huge ball of emotion and then you have to like try to figure out oh, how do I get the song out of this you know it's um, it's a wonderful wonderful feeling so can you just apply that to one of your songs can we talk about one moment yeah absolutely 
Okay, yeah. So it's basically the same process over and over again in sort of like uh, onion skin layers. Mm. So the um, the first version is just Tim, our bassist, alone in his little home studio, just playing around with instruments. Um, and, you know, he's just trying out different things, and he stumbles upon this sort of like evocative, melancholy feeling attached to a particular set of chords around a particular beat. You know, it's like there's something about this thing. It's only really three chords. Mm. We've heard those chords a million times before, but something about doing it with these instruments in this way touches him some way. So he brings that along with, you know, 10 other songs over to my house and... We, we start the sort of next onion skin layer, which is like if you have this set of feelings, now can you pull and push and line things up such that you can actually get lyrics attached to this that and a melody attached to this that gives it depth and that doesn't flatten it? And with this one, it, it became about sort of like that that feeling of intensity, right? That 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 feeling of being overwhelmed by both the beauty and sadness of life at the same time, that this life you are leading will end. Somehow that gives it all value. If we were infinite, nothing would matter. that's a sentiment that has been said millions and millions of times and yet to be able to say it in a fresh way that's that's the talent that's the skill that's the joy of your job i'm I'm pretty sure we're the only people who've ever said that so (laughs) um i given the things i make you you'll be this will sound off but um i i don't think originality is itself all that important um Mm. I think communication and, and connection with other humans is is the is the real sort of brass ring, golden egg. What is it? It's one of those things. Um, because you can you can go and try to make a piece of music that has literally never been made before. Um, you can go and try to write words that have never been done before. You can make pictures or images or experiences that have never been done before. But that's almost definitionally going to put you in a territory of of just uncomfortable um, or arbitrary. Uh, like language is a perfect metaphor for this or analogy, I guess, because you you can't just make sounds. You have to use the same sounds everybody else is using and then make them yours, you know? I am going to take these words forward and try to play the parallax game with all the segments of TED Radio Hour. You are, you have a perfect sandbox because... Yeah, I really do, right? Right? It's like connecting the dots between those, lining them up so that, they, that they're fresh and new and they communicate in a new medium and in a new place. It w- will be one of the most satisfying things you have ever done with your life. You will be so happy. Damien Kulash Jr., lead singer of OK Go. And here it goes again, but different. With the TED Radio Hour from NPR, our show today is reinvention. I'm Manoush Samarodi. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. And on today's show, ideas about reinvention, like redefining success in our cutthroat, win-at-all-costs culture. Our next guest knows a lot about that. 
because she's kind of a legend in gymnastics. In my tenure at UCLA, I was the assistant coach for seven years, and then I was the head coach for 29 years. And in my 29 years, I led our team to seven national championships, tons of individual NCAA championships and Pac-12 championships, which I don't really keep track of. I was also inducted into the UCLA Athletic Hall of Fame. And I was also voted the Pac-12 Coach of the Century. That's where we need the music to go. The Century. Yeah. This is Valerie Kondo's field. And I am the recently retired head coach of the UCLA women's gymnastics team. So clearly, Valerie, or Miss Val, as she's called by her gymnasts, is used to winning. But she says that in the 90s, when she first started coaching... I was pathetic, horrible, (laughs) (laughs) trying to be somebody else. Don't be so hard. (laughs) No, I was bad. What was your what were your expectations for the job? Were you like, I am going to come in and I am going to what? I was totally out of my league. I had no idea what I was doing. I thought, you know, I grew up on stage acting. I can act. Let's just act like a coach. And so in my mind, this quintessential coach is someone who's really sharp-tongued, uncompromising, unempathetic, relentless, has really sharp quips. Go harder, go home. Winners make adjustments and losers make excuses. And then you just give them this glare and then you walk away. Ouch. Yeah. I was tougher and meaner and more of a bully. So we did absolutely horribly. And in hindsight now, it wasn't the gymnastics. It's the fact that I knew nothing about how to develop a culture. My first few seasons as a head coach were abysmal. Valerie Kondo's field continues her story from the TED stage. And after putting up with my brash coaching style for a few years, our team asked me for a team meeting. And for two solid hours, they explained to me that they wanted to be supported, not belittled. They wanted to be coached up, not torn down. They wanted to be motivated, not pressured or bullied. It is so much easier in any walk of life to dictate and give orders than to actually figure out how to motivate someone to want to be better. Being a dogmatic dictator may produce compliant, good little soldiers, but it doesn't develop champions in life. With awards and medals, athletes often leave their teams damaged, emotionally, mentally, not just physically. We have become so hyper-focused on that end result, and when the end result is a win, the human component of how we got there often gets swept under the proverbial rug, and so does the damage. I realized winning does not always equal success. It sounds like that moment of having your team call you out had a big impact on you. Like, you made a big flip. Huge, huge flip. Athletics is such a great metaphor for life because you're going to fall down more times than you succeed. And it's not how many times you fall down, it's how you're going to get yourself up. In that moment, I had a choice, and I chose to change. I remember thinking, we can train champions at the highest level without compromising the human spirit. And I knew at that moment I was going to develop champions in life through the sport of gymnastics. So, okay, so you have this, I mean, essentially an epiphany in a day, but then you got to wake up the next morning and put this all into action. What did you do? I just started really helping our student-athletes understand that I cared about them first and foremost as whole human beings. So as we started each day, let's define what success looks like today. Mm. And so, like on BEAM, I coached Balance BEAM. I love BEAM because it's so mental. Mm. And gymnasts, a lot of them, especially growing up in that era, were taught that they were to seek perfection. And I was like, no, 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 no. No, perfection doesn't exist. And if you're learning a new skill, you're not going to hit 10 out of 10 of them 
perfectly. It's not going to happen. But what will it look like for you to be able to leave today saying, I got better. I got 1% better today, including all of the quote unquote, we call them now soft skills. I hate that term. I like to call them life skills, including how you related with your coaches, how you related with your teammates. Did you help a teammate today? Mm -hmm. And I remember one of the athletes that had gone through that change and that transformation time with me, when she became a senior, she said, you have finally become a leader worth following. (laughs) Wow. And then she went on to say, it's because you're being authentic and true to who you are, even when you make mistakes, it's okay, because we know it's coming from a proper intention. Kyla Ross, another one of our gymnasts, is one of the greatest gymnasts in the history of the sport. She's the only athlete to have earned the trifecta. She's a national champion, a world champion, and an Olympic champion. She's also not one for small talk. So I was a bit surprised one day when she came to my office, sat on the couch, and just started talking. First about her major, then about graduate school, and then about everything else that seemed to pop into her mind. My inner voice whispered to me that something was on her mind. And if I was still and gave her enough time, it would come out. And it did. It was the first time that Kyla had shared with anyone that she had been sexually abused by Larry Nassar, the former USA Gymnastics team doctor who was later convicted of being a serial child molester. Kyla came forward and joined the army of Nassar survivors who shared their stories and used their voices to invoke positive change for our world. It was in the middle of our competition season, and I chose to bring this up in a few different team meetings. Not constantly, but I felt it was important to give our student-athletes a safe space to talk about this and to help them formulate words to put to their emotions, whether they were a victim or just a friend of a victim. And later that year, we won the national championship. UCLA has won the national championship. Unbelievable getting emotional watching this, knowing what these girls have been through. You work so hard for this. You dream about this day. You dream about this moment to be able to come out here. Kyla came up to me and said, Miss Val, one reason we won was because you addressed the elephant in the room, the scandal. And she said, in doing so, it liberated all of my memories and the truth. And she said, I literally felt myself walk taller as the season went on. And when I walked onto that championship floor, I felt invincible simply because I had been heard. And you'll tell Brother Todd! Oh my gosh! It's a 10! She's got the Grand Slam! A 10 on every event! When I talk about developing a champion in life through sport, gymnastics is what gave all of those women the confidence and the poise to look their sexual abuser in the eye and tell their story without losing their cool. Do you think that if you had not changed your coaching style, that Kyla would have come to you and told you about her experience with Larry Nasser? No, there's no way, because they had zero trust in me mm. at that point. And in order to really have a relationship with someone, you have got to build trust. And it takes a long time. But it's so important. I mean, it does feel like we're at this moment when it comes to listening to women and girls. And and that listening is starting in some ways, you know, it's not just in gymnastics. It's in other sports. It's in Hollywood. It's in politics. But so much of what you're also talking about is reinventing the overall culture of what success even means. How do we begin to do that? It starts in the home with the parents. It starts when your child is young. It starts when your child has a teacher or a coach that is bullish 
and that you allow it to happen because you want your child to get the edge to get onto that team or to get that scholarship to a D1 school. Mm. Right. If you want to help your child develop into a whole human being, into a champion in life, you're not going to just care about the end result. You're going to care about the process and the experience. And you'll ask different questions then. So when your child gets in the car, instead of saying, did you win? You'll say, what'd you learn today? You'll say, did you help a teammate out? And my favorite question is, did you figure out how to have fun at working really, really hard at something? And then the key is to be quiet and listen to their response. So making sure that you get to know your child and realizing what makes each of them tick and unique and beautiful and brilliant and defining success for them. So if I've got a young daughter and she's in gymnastics and I'm helping her redefine success and she's not gifted as a gymnast, but she loves the sport, let's define it. Let's look at all the different avenues that she can be in in this wonderful sport of gymnastics that's not along the national team training path. Mm. What are the other paths? What are the other options for her? And let's define success that way. We have to redefine success in every single walk of life, sports, businesses, politics, in the home. And we have to keep believing that you can achieve greatness without being bullish, without throwing other people under the bus, without compromising the human spirit. That's Valerie Condos Field, the former head coach of UCLA's women's gymnastics team. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, stories of reinvention, reinventing the ways that we think, create, and interact with each other. But what does reinvention look like for an entire city? As you know, I've been saying reinvent Stockton, reinvent Stockton for the past eight years. So this is something we, we, we talk about every day. This is Michael Tubbs. I'm the mayor of the city of Stockton, California. And before that, he served on the city council, starting when he was just 22 years old. It's hilarious now because people are still saying, who is this kid and why does he think um, we, we, we should do things this way? Because Michael, like a lot of Stockton residents, felt that his city needed a big transformation. I think it, it's like every American city has had challenges, but our challenges were much more acute and oftentimes the worst. Um, so, for example, when I ran for city council, we were the largest city at the time to declare bankruptcy. Hmm. Um, at the same year, we had more murders per capita than Chicago. Wow. <laughs> Um, we were ranked by Forbes magazine as the most miserable city in the United States. Most miserable? Most miserable city in this entire country for two years in a row. Um, and, and that's kind of the backdrop in which I, 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 with other members, came back and said, let's fix this. That what we have been doing is not working and let's put ourselves on the path um, to a brighter future. Reinventing Stockton would mean taking on issues that Michael had experienced when he was growing up there. So many of the discussions around my dinner table were really around sort of bread and butter issues. How are we going to pay the light bill next week? Do we need to borrow money from someone? Mm. What are we going to eat tomorrow? Um, how was work, et cetera? And that's because my mom, she had me when she's a teenager. And my father's still incarcerated. He's been incarcerated for most of the last 29 years. Um, so growing up, a lot of the issues that I care about and that I'm passionate about were things I lived first. So when we talk about poverty, when we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline and being kicked out of class for things like willful defiance, that was my elementary and high school career. Mm. Um, but luckily for me, my mom, my aunt, and my grandmother um, formed what I call a triple wall of mothers. <laughs> and they did everything in their power um, to make sure I was affirmed. And I knew that my voice mattered and, I, and that there was expectation for me. The conversation was always, you are supposed to be great. You're supposed to be excellent. You are going to be somebody. And we don't have a lot, but we'll do everything in our power to ensure that, that you at least have a, a, a small foundation on which to build on. 
And it was that support system that gave Michael the confidence to study hard, which got him into Stanford and an internship at the White House. And he thought he was on the right track, the perfect track. I just felt like I had turned a corner and that, 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 that something was, was changing and that life was just going to be uh, optimism and, 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 and rainbows. But then I, I think it was late 2010 that you actually got some difficult news that changed everything for you, right? Yes. Yeah, so I remember November 1st um, being at the White House and my mom, she was very respectful um, of, of the job. So she wouldn't call until after work. But she called and I picked up the phone. Her, her voice was really muffled. And my mom doesn't cry that often. In fact, I could count on my hand the amount of times I've seen her cry in my life. So I knew something was wrong. She said, just call me after work. But, but I couldn't. So I remember taking the call, and she informed me that my cousin, Donnell James II, had been murdered. Um, and that was tragic in and of itself, but even more tragic, because that year there was 55 homicides in the city. Wow. And the year after, there were 71. And, and that was a real tough moment, particularly as a, as a 20-year-old. Um, and then I remember being very angry, being really upset, and almost having a, a, a feelings of nihilism creep up in terms of how futile everything was. Mm. And it was in the midst of that pain and that grief that a thought came that, that, that maybe all the individual success and kind of the opportunities and the rooms I was able to walk into, given from the unlikely place in which we started, that maybe it wasn't just for me to be successful. That, that, that maybe, um, as a spiritual person, that maybe there was a bigger plan um, for, for all this. And, and, and maybe it was to kind of put that pain to purpose. So the next year... After still doing a lot of soul-searching and, 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 and thinking, I, I decided that I would run for city council. Big decision. <laughs> yeah, a huge decision. How did people respond to that? Like, did they think, like, who is this kid? Or was it, like, people were like, oh, finally, someone who gets what we, the citizens, actually need? Well, absolutely both. But, but for, at first, a lot of people thought it was a joke. Um, I was still a student at the time. I was commuting from home to Stanford um, every day. Um, I, I was getting my master's and bachelor's at the same time and campaigning full time. Um, but I was just driven by so much kind of passion and, and, and a sense that this is what I'm supposed to be doing, even if I can't guarantee the outcome. So in 2012, Michael became one of the youngest city council members in the country. And then four years later... Michael Tubbs wins Stockton's mayoral race in a landslide, and the 26-year-old becomes one of the youngest mayors in the country. People were watching. elected Michael Tubbs as his first African-American mayor. How would this young mayor take on all of Stockton's problems? His hometown is struggling with one of the highest crime and unemployment rates in the state. He's taking a bold approach to address these problems. We'll find out in just a minute. On the show today, ideas about reinvention. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. And on the show today, stories of reinvention. And before the break, we were talking with Michael Tubbs about his journey to become the mayor of Stockton, California. He was just 26 years old, leading a city with a lot of challenges. Here's Michael Tubbs on the TED stage. So in Stockton, we historically have had problems with violent crime. In fact, that's why I decided to run for office in the first place. And my first job as mayor was be helping our community to see ourselves, our neighbors, not just in the people victimized by violence, but also by the perpetrators. 
Uh, we, we realize that, that those who enact pain in our society, those who are committing to homicides and contributing to gun violence, are oftentimes victims themselves. They have high rates of trauma. They have been shot at. They know people who have been shot. And that doesn't excuse their behavior, but it helps explain it. And I said, as a community, we have to see these folks as us too, that they too are our neighbors. So for the past three years, we've been working on two strategies, ceasefire and advanced peace, where we give these guys as much attention, as much love from social services, from opportunities, from tattoo removals, in some cases even cash, as they get from law enforcement. And last year, we saw a 40% reduction in homicides and a 30% reduction um, in, in violent crimes. So the ceasefire strategy is a group violence reduction strategy where we look at kind of groups where the violence is picking up or there's a potential for retaliation. Mm-hmm. And they meet with myself, the police chief. So you actually sit down with some of those groups. Oh, yeah. And the message is simple. From law enforcement, our police chief, Eric Jones, he gives a message of, hey, I'm the police chief. I know you're not used to hearing this from people like me, but I want you to stay alive. I want you to have opportunity. And because the violence is the top priority of the city, if you don't stop committing violence, I will have to use all the enforcement tools at my disposal. Not because I don't like you, but because your mom, your cousins, your community wants to be safe. And then I speak as the mayor and I say that, hey, a lot of people look at you guys as the problem, but I think you guys also are a piece of the solution. And then we have a team of folks called peacekeepers who work with um, the guys who want to change and help them navigate social services, etc. So one of your other initiatives as mayor that you're doing, and this one is kind of controversial, is your approach to dealing with poverty in Stockton. For sure. So the ethos behind this is that, number one, I unequivocally hate poverty. I think it's antiquated. I think it's immoral. So when I became mayor, I said, we have to do something around poverty. As someone who comes from poverty, it's a personal issue for me. So I decided that we would call into question the very structure that produces poverty in the first place. So starting in February, we launched a basic income demonstration where for the next 18 months, as a pilot, 130 families randomly selected who live in zip codes at or below the median income of the city are given $500 a month. And we're doing this for a couple of reasons. We're doing it because we realize that something is structurally wrong in America when one in two Americans can't afford one $400 emergency. We're doing it because we realize something is structurally wrong when people are working two and three jobs, doing all the jobs no one in here wants to do and can't pay for necessities like rent, like health care, like, like child care. And in the past nine months, we've heard incredible stories. There's a gentleman by the name of Tomas who told me that the $500 was enough for him to go to an interview. And I was like, where are you interviewing? L.A.? Like, are you traveling? And he said, no, Mayor, I work an hourly job. So if I ever took time off from my hourly job to interview for a better job, I would forfeit the money for the day because I don't get paid time off. Right? Yeah. And he said $500 a month was enough for him to bet on himself. And he ended up getting the job. So now he works less hours, makes more money, has benefits, and is able to spend more time with his kids. So you are working so hard to reinvent your city, and you've really reinvented yourself and what anyone thought a poor kid from Stockton was capable of. But you close your talk with this term, exceptionalism, that people might say, look at this guy, he grew up in poverty, his father's in jail, and he's the mayor of a big American city. Anyone can do it. But you don't think that's the case, do you? Absolutely. And I hate, I abhor exceptionalism for a couple of reasons. Number one, agency is definitely real. And I think I I approve that structures aren't destiny, that despite all these things, people can make it. But I think the argument is that it's so noteworthy. It gets so much attention because it's so rare. Mm. And that we truly have to ask ourselves, like, well, why is this so rare? Why is it noteworthy? If if talent and intellect are universal, why is it we're shocked that a kid from South Stockton could go to Stanford and be mayor? And why is there only one? So one of my favorite poems is a poem from the rapper Tupac Shakur. And it's about a rose that, that grew from concrete. Just like if you try to plant something in the concrete, you know what I mean? If it grows... And I think for too often we get excited about a rose growing from concrete. And I just want to see us redirect the energy to really answering the question, why should roses have to grow from concrete in the first place? 
So yes, we may plant a million seeds and one rose may grow from concrete, but we're missing out on so much because 999,000 other seeds didn't grow, not because they were bad seeds, but because the damn seeds weren't supposed to grow from concrete anyway. And, and, I, and I view kind of my role the same way to really kind of use my story to highlight kind of what is possible, but also say, well, how many Michael Tubbses are there right now in communities across this country? Um, with parents who are incarcerated, with, with mothers who have them young, who are driven, who are smart. And, and how are we less than what we could be because we don't give all our kids the same opportunity to, to, to reach their potential? That's Michael Tubbs. He is the mayor of Stockton, California. And you can hear his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, reinvention. I think that... For most people today, and certainly the vast majority of young people, capitalism has not worked for them. It hasn't. Mm. Like they are not better off than their parents. They're living at home, saddled with $200,000 worth of college debt and facing the prospect of climate oblivion. And for those people, my sense is they're desperate for a new set of ideas. So do you still think of yourself as a capitalist then? Yes, yes. And here's why. Markets are the greatest social technology ever invented for solving human problems. This is Nick Hanauer. Now, the way in which you organize those markets, which is what we're presently calling capitalism, well, there's as many flavors of that as pie. And in the same way that dirt pie tastes terrible and cherry pie tastes great, you can have a great institutional arrangement of markets or a terrible one. Nick is a billionaire entrepreneur. He was the first investor in Amazon. He's since cashed out. Yeah, and that worked out super, super well, obviously. But over the last 20 years, Nick has come to question the very system that worked out so well for him. That's not a capitalist democracy anymore. That's some sort of feudal autocracy. Hmm. And so I had this freak out and recognized that if we didn't fix this as a country, that it would collapse. The government is working better and better for the billionaires. For the These ideas are definitely not new. And worse and worse for everyone else. You've we probably heard candidates talk like this on the U.S. presidential campaign trail. We will not give tax breaks to billionaires. But Nick's part of a small club of billionaires who want to be taxed more, to pay workers more, to reinvent capitalism. So how do we reinvent capitalism? So to reinvent capitalism, you have to reinvent the meaning system within which it sits. You have to rip economics down to the studs. Nick Hanauer explains from the TED stage. Rich capitalists like me have never been richer. How do we do it? How do we manage to grab an ever-increasing share of the economic pie every year? It all comes down to just one thing. Economics. Today's growing crises of rising inequality and growing political instability are the direct result of decades of bad economic theory. Neoliberal economic assumption is that the price of something is always equal to its value, which basically means that if you earn $50,000 a year and I earn $50 million a year, that's because I produce a thousand times as much value as you. But please, take it from somebody who's run dozens of businesses. This is nonsense. People are not paid what they are worth. They are paid what they have the power to negotiate. And wages' falling share of GDP is not because workers have become less productive, but because employers have become more powerful. By pretending that the giant imbalance in power between capital and labor doesn't exist, neoliberal economic theory became essentially a protection racket for the rich. Can we just talk about why there is this huge wage gap? Okay. To answer your question, we have to get a tiny bit wonky. Let's do it. Okay. So the mid-20th century was dominated by a set of ideas that 
all the policymakers relied on to describe what the economy was and how it worked and what we should do to make it better. Hmm. And their conception was in an efficient market populated by rational, selfish people, it always is at the best possible place. And if you change it, you'll make it worse for everybody. Hmm. They're saying that it's rational to be selfish because I presumably you're looking out for your own survival is the way they look at it. Correct. And that's the only thing you're looking out for. So greed is... Greed is good. Under this economic logic, greed is good. Widening inequality is efficient. And the only purpose of the corporation can be to enrich shareholders because to do otherwise would be to slow economic growth and harm the economy overall. And it is this gospel of selfishness which forms the ideological cornerstone of neoliberal economics, a way of thinking which has enabled me and my rich buddies in the top 1% to grab virtually all of the benefits of growth over the last 40 years. But the economics that made me so rich, it's backwards. In fact, a growing number of academics and practitioners have concluded that neoliberal economic theory is dangerously wrong. I mean, that theory really reminds me of the 80s and trickle-down economics. That's right, trickle-down economics. When the rich get richer, that's good for society. And it it was enshrined in all kinds of laws, like the fact that if the minimum wage had tracked productivity, instead of being $7.25 today, it would be more like $24, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Why did we suppress it? Because the framework that we live with was built by and for mostly rich white men, to benefit rich white men. (laughs) So I have to ask, as a rich white man, when you started poking holes in some of these theories and speaking out about it, that certainly must have surprised, shocked, maybe dismayed some of those other rich white men? Oh, yeah. Not a great way to win a popularity contest. (laughs) Definitely not. What would they say to you? You know, in the beginning, it made people super, super angry, Uh, even my close friends, Because I think that people didn't understand at all how bad inequality had become. And so. Did you ever have this conversation with your buddy Jeff Bezos? Uh, Only loosely. Jeff Bezos is a radical libertarian who is as neoliberal as they come (laughs) and who desperately wants to believe that the $100 billion of wealth that he has, he deserves. So. Yeah, we're definitely not aligned on these issues. So as part of your strategies to reinvent how our economy works, you have been an advocate of raising the minimum wage. You've also been advocating for the rich, like yourself, to be taxed at a much higher rate than what it is now. I mean, it's probably less than you pay. Well, Um, yeah. uh, Because most of my income is in capital gains, which is taxed at a much lower rate than ordinary income. For the first time really in American history, first time in 100 years, billionaires paid less tax on their income than, you know, median workers. Mm. And so if you want to have a functioning society, you have to fix that and appropriately attack both wealth and income and capital. So how much in taxes do you think you should pay? Uh Oh, 50, 60 percent, probably. Uh At least 50. Yeah. So why Uh, not just give that money away? I get that all the time. (laughs) And I could do that. I could. But, you know, what I do individually would not be effective. So I spend my money on minimum wage campaigns. Mm -hmm. And my team just pushed through in the state of Washington the highest overtime threshold in the nation when fully enacted Basically, anyone who makes less than $100,000 a year will get paid time and a half for working more than 40 hours a week. So so let's – can we cast forward? Like, let's say, Nick, your wishes come true. What, yeah. what does that look like? So if I was in charge and my dreams came true, uh, we would have an economy which was much larger because – Instead of the median wage being $36,000, it'd be more like Mm $60,000 because people would be getting paid 
as much as the productivity of the country suggested they should be. Hmm. Where So imagine a society where you could, for instance, be a waiter in a restaurant because that's what you enjoyed doing and live a dignified, stable, and secure middle-class life with a prospect for retirement. Like, that's the society we want. That We want to have a society where the price of operating a business is that you pay 100% of your workers enough to get by without food stamps. And that we agree that if an industry cannot operate in a way where all of their workers live dignified and decent lives, hmm. then that industry or that company should not exist. But for that to happen, those are the people who have to give something up. Someone has to give something up yeah. for the rest yeah. of the people to get something. Yes, correct. And while there will be some rich people who will disagree, at the end of the day, a society where everyone is doing well will be a society that will be better for rich people too. That's entrepreneur Nick Hanauer. He's also the host of the podcast Pitchfork Economics. And you can see Nick's full talk at TED.com. Thank you so much for listening to our show on reinvention this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to TED.NPR.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out TED.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Rachel Faulkner, Diba Motasham, James Delahousi, J.C. Howard, Katie Monteleon, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Christina Kala, Kiera Brown, and Hannah Bolaños, with help from Brent Bachman and Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Matthew Cloutier, and our theme music was written by Ramtin Arablui. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center, who, as an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center in the country's top 4%, is unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. MasseyCancerCenter.org slash comprehensive. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.